Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we preview IndieCon, the indie magazine fair that takes place in Hamburg every year. We also hear from some of the editors that will be present there. Plus, we pay a visit to the offices of Estonia's largest newspaper. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. On today's show, we preview IndieCon, the independent publishing festival that takes place in Hamburg every year. This time, it will open its doors to visitors from September the 2nd to the 4th. This year, they feature their most international lineup ever, and I'm proud to say that I was invited to be on the curatorial board to help pick titles for an international travel grant to visit the event. We start with a little preview of what to expect from IndieCon. I spoke with their curator, Nina Prader. IndieCon is one of the only publishing festivals that took place during the high of the pandemic, but this year it's going to be actually the largest edition ever, and it's looking to be the most international so far, as well as expert talks with some really wonderful people who will be offering professional mentoring to publishers. And we have, yeah, publishers coming from all over the world. So it's going to be super exciting. And I love, you know, that you want the, the festival to be international as well. And I think that applies as well for the travel grants that you decided to give. And it's genuinely international, people from all over the world. Tell us a bit more about that and, and, and why you have done that. Because it is true for a lot of publishers, it's quite expensive to travel all the way, traveling continents even. Absolutely. I think most festivals around publishing very much want to be places that promote being international places, but the logistics of it often are, of course, also economical, related to borders and the pandemic, related to just higher power in a way. And this year we wanted to see if it was possible in some way to make it more possible for people from all over to come. And I mean, this year we have, from the travel brand, really, uh, we have Safar, we have we have Hammam, we have Sik, we have Kaje and um, Meantime Magazine coming from like Lagos, Nigeria, Singapore, the sort of international. It's really exciting to also learn how international magazines are being made because a magazine might be outwardly promoting itself as being from one place, but the whole team might actually be coming from like Canada or um, the distribution might be located somewhere else. So actually everything about publishing is international. The whole process of it is international. And Hamburg is a very charming city as well. I've only been there once, but that's, that's where the, the festival will be, right? As it has been traditionally. Yes. Um, well, repetition is not a repeat is this year's festival. Yes. Tell us um, more about theme. that as well. It sort of speaks to many different aspects of publishing. So on one hand, of course, how magazines are made, but it also speaks to the sort of seriality and um, also to the fact that actually every time you make something, whether that's a magazine or a festival, it is with a difference. It is like doing it again, but once more with feeling, you know? So this year, IndieCon is not taking place at 
its usual location in Hamburg. It's taking place at Hammer Brooklyn, which is a really teched out cool space and uh, it'll be a different vibe, but it'll also maybe be another way of celebrating everything wonderful about independent publishing. And I think publishers really deserve it in these times with paper shortages and everything going on in the world. Yeah, you're rightly said. I mean, there's a lot of kind of difficulties in the industry. But one difficulty mm -hmm. that I, I don't think we have is that people are interested in magazines. I mean, just look, you will see there in Indicom, but because there's a lot of new titles as well. That's always so fascinating. People keep asking, Fernando, how do you do the stack? I'm like, well, there are always, always new titles coming up. And there are quite a lot of them. And that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting to just see how busy and productive all these magazine makers have been in these times or precisely because of these times, it's proven that there's more reason to write about all manner of things. I mean, I think SICK will be a part of the conference and is one of the winners of the travel grant is uh, particularly interesting here because the um, magazine highlights how to deal with trauma and disability. And then that also applied to magazine making in itself and is something that I think everyone in some way can relate to in a much more poignant way than maybe a few years ago. And the same thing goes also, I think, for many other magazines. Um, I mean, I'm really looking forward to Meantime coming because they also the aesthetic of the magazine is printed always in a particular way and has like a particular feature. So um, I'm very looking forward to seeing what this year's magazine's haptic feature is, something that you can't experience online and something that you can only experience by a touch. And that really is also what I think IndieCon is all about, is that this like interpersonal experience is something that the digital just can't replace no website can replace the experience of this festival of coming together and trading information around magazine culture. And my final question to you, Nina, we are playing this interview on Saturday, so there's still a week to go to IndieCon. Mm. Can someone still find a ticket if they are in Hamburg? I mean, can someone that is just a passionate of magazines go there and visit the fair? Yes. The great thing about IndieCon is it's absolutely free. So all mm -hmm. you have to do is go onto our IndieCon website and register. And I think here I'll also use the time to plug our conference, which is going to highlight on one hand the travel grantees, but we're also really pleased to have keynote speakers such as Remiki Forbes, the creative director of Jacobin magazine and the publish, which will be also moderated by Arts of the Working Class. And uh, Stephen Watts of The Stack will be giving talks and everything will be around this question of repetition is not a repeat and what that means for us in pandemic publishing time. So you can sign up on our website, uh, both for the conference and for just making your presence known that you'll show up at the festival. And of course, follow us on all of our Instagram channels and sign up for our newsletter. Thank you very much, Nina. We have more IndieCon for you. I invited the editors of the six titles that received the travel grant to introduce their titles to our listeners. Some of them will be familiar voices for listeners of the stack. Here they are.
Hi, I'm Steve, one of the co-founders of Hammam. Hammam is a print-only bathing magazine that we started publishing in 2020 for readers to have a good soak and let go. The magazine has received several industry awards, including Best New Indie Mag by Page Magazines, Best Periodical Design by the Graphic Design Association of Turkey, Magazine of the Week by Mag Culture, and a project we love by Kickstarter for our successful campaign that helped us print the first issue. In a recent editorial by Mag Culture, they wrote, Hamam is so appealing because at its steamy core, this is a magazine about something all of us grapple with, how to live. It explores the common idea and desire to cleanse ourselves, physically in water, spiritually and mentally. In every issue, each story features illustrations, artwork or photography. The magazine is 112 pages, printed in Istanbul, Turkey, and available to be shipped worldwide. A limited number of copies are printed, so collect each issue while you still can. You can buy direct from our website at hamam, that's H-A-M-A-M, mag.com. Once again, that's hamammag.com, H-A-M-A-M-M-A-G.com. Follow us on social at Hamam Magazine. Hama Magazine, stay wet. I'm Pang, the editor of Meantime. Meantime is an independent magazine from Singapore about the country's history told through personal stories. The theme for our latest third issue is funny stories or humor with features about escaped tigers, sex workers, and a nationwide hair-cutting drive. This is our second time at Indicon. We were at the festival in 2019 with our first issue on love stories. Since then, the world has weathered a pandemic. And in such times, I think we all need funny stories now more than ever. We are incredibly thrilled to return to Indicon this year with our latest issue, where you can read about the strange, bizarre and beguiling stories from our little country, Singapore. Also, the magazine comes with a massive bite taken out of it. And if you scan the pages with your phones, features could be brought to life with augmented reality. You have to see it for yourself and hold the magazine in your hands to see the magic. Find us on Instagram at meantime.zine or come say hello to us. I'm Ayamide Mimi Aborwa, founder and creative director of Airy Journal. Taking its meaning from the Yoruba word for walk, travel and journey, Airy Journal is an independent print magazine on African culture and travel. With Erie Journal, we want to get more Africans to know about themselves and to build a shared identity, and we want the world to get to know more about the continent. Through archiving, documenting, and showcasing the richness and breadth of African culture through the lens of its past and present in each different city we feature, Airy Journal aims to connect the continent between and beyond its borders through those who call it home. At Airy, we're passing the pen. We're inviting locals to shift the narrative and tell their own story. We're not trying to glamorize the continent, but show Africa and Africans as who they are. The good, the bad, the ugly and the beautiful.
Our first issue was all about the popular city of Lagos, and now we head to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, a look into its music, food, past, art, fashion, and so much more. At Erie, we want to inform, educate, and solicit a desire to participate through travel and other means. Whether it's by cooking Nigerian food, playing South African music, wearing Senegalese clothes, to buying Kenyan art, Iri is a personal invitation to connect with Africa and unearth the different yet collective experiences we all share as humans, regardless of where we're from. I'm Olivia Spring, editor of Sick, a magazine by chronically ill and disabled people. I have been chronically ill for over half of my life, and I wanted to create this magazine because I was frustrated that my body didn't allow me to work a traditional full-time job, and I found the creative industries to be inaccessible to me. I also wanted to create a space to challenge stereotypes and misconceptions related to illness and disability, and to increase representation of disabled people in the arts. We work in and with our slowness, pausing and resting when we need to. We believe, listen to, and support each other. We reject productivity as means of value and celebrate our sick and disabled bodies. Our first issue was published in 2019, and we are now about to release our fourth issue, which is 120 pages and features essays, poetry, features, art, interviews, and more by sick and disabled people. Hello, this is Petre Mogos. I'm co-editor of The Future Of, a Bucharest-based magazine that explores the lost potential of extinct ideas, a publication that deals with cancelled thoughts and other forms of lost knowledge. Our first issue focused on the very much scorned and disliked and unpopular notion of nostalgia, while the second and our most recent volume explores the paradoxical and uh, very much misunderstood nature of ghosts. How can we learn to live with ghosts rather than without them? Because regardless if we want them or not, they are here and they want us. This is the underlying premise from which this uh, second edition departs. Besides this, I'm also the co-editor of Kite Journal, a magazine that seeks to document and critically approach the wide ranging um, cultural, artistic, and philosophical manifestations of Eastern Europe. Our most recent issue, the fifth one, focuses on a concept that we often find impossible to grapple with, or almost impossible to grapple with, the future, and more specifically, this idea of Eastern futurism. So we end up asking ourselves, if the 20th century allegedly embodied the failures of the dreams that informed the modern world, how does the 21st century look like for Eastern Europe and what does the future hold for us? Find us in Hamburg at Indicon and let's try to come up with some answers together. My name is Maya Mumne and I'm the co-founder, co-editor-in-chief and co-creative director of Safar. The other half of these three titles is Hatim Imam. I'll be physically present in Hamburg for Indicon this year. Safar is a design and visual culture journal published bilingually in Arabic and English from Beirut and most recently Montreal. The name Safar is Arabic for travel and it refers to notions of communication, especially across cultural, linguistic and disciplinal borders. The magazine answers to the lack of critical writings on design in the global south and it works towards acknowledging designers as active agents of cultural production. So for each issue we invite designers, writers, thinkers and other creatives to respond to a set theme. 
We had the publishing itch from the very start, growing up studying and then working and producing from Beirut. We felt like there has always been a big gap in writing about regional design and visual culture. There were conversations and disputes to be had, as well as opinions and discoveries to be made. And so we started Safar the magazine because we wanted to stop and reflect. The magazine was both an internal field of experimentation and a public interface of our thinking. And through making it, we discovered her voice. We spoke about the urgent topics that were shaping our world, nostalgia, migration, power, and most recently networks. Safar's seventh and latest issue examines the sprawling and ubiquitous life of networks. Networks of money and the many, many ways it moves, but also networks of food, networks of distribution and consumption, networks of care and mutual support, networks of resistance, and networks of revolt against the complicated webs that continue to divide, enforce binaries, and oppress. This issue highlights how different networks are manifested in the visual realm via drawings, maps, photographs, documents, and renderings. It also aims to engage with the history of radical networks, such as mutual aid, anti-colonial, and transnational feminist formations that may teach us how to mobilize against our present and towards emancipatory futures. We head to Estonia now. As a small country with a history of Soviet occupation, Russia's attack on Ukraine has hit close to home for Estonians. Brit Halbemagi started as an editor-in-chief of Estonia's largest newspaper, Postimes, earlier this year. Monaco's Markus Hippie caught up with him to discuss Moscow's disinformation attempts and how the paper has dealt with Russia's invasion of Ukraine plus the role of Postimes throughout the turbulent history of Estonia. Postimes has an amazing history. It was launched in the 1850s. There's a lot to summarize, I guess, but could you try to explain to us the important role it has been playing throughout the history of Estonia? Well, it's the longest living brand, uh, media brand in Estonia. It was started in 1857 and it played a very important role in forming of uh, Estonian state, the Republic of Estonia, it was one of the most important vehicles to provide ideas of national independence to Estonians who were living in the Russian Empire. And then during 1920 to 1940, it was one of the two main large daily newspapers, politically very important during our first period of independence. Then from the Russian occupation, it was renamed, but it uh, remained published. And at the end of the 80s, the relatives of the former owner of uh, Postimes, Jan Tönnison, who owned it from uh, 1900 to 1934, again got hold of the newspaper, and they were the main investors. And then the modern Postimes was rebuilt, and this is, and today, this is the largest um, daily newspaper in Estonia. What is astonishing is that, or very interesting, is that you started your your position, your current position in the spring, when Russia had already begun its invasion of Ukraine. What did it mean for you and for this newspaper? How did that change, for example, daily work? Well, it changed the very beginning uh, very much because we were not actually ready to think about the tactical flag vests and uh, insurances for reporters who go to front line and so on, so on. So we had a lot to do with just on the material side of how to send reporters to the 
war and to the country which is in the war. But well, we managed to do it and we had some tens of people working the first period of the war in Ukraine. We were publishing lots of stories. Uh, we started to understand war much better. Maybe we started to understand much better the people who are under that kind of pressure working and living there. So today we do not hold uh, too many people in Ukraine, but we have uh, a few persons always there. So if there's something happens, they will be on the place. And uh, of course, Ukraine is a very important topic. So we, we follow it daily. Is there an Estonian point of view or angle to these stories if you contrast what Best Postimers is doing to, say, what Finland's Helsing and Sanomat is doing or the big British newspapers? Do you think there is something you do differently? Well, it's difficult to say, but uh, some of the journalists have the background of living uh, in Estonia during the Soviet occupation. And uh, this is kind of... Uh, experience which is very similar to some parts of Ukraine today. So I think that some of our journalists have a better understanding of the premises, how and what the people do there and how difficult it is to go back from the free and independent Ukraine to a situation when there is you have a huge horrible neighbor who wants to kill your people. Tell me about the importance of Postimes and your kind of print media during these times. How do you see? What's what's the role? How important is it? Well, Postimes is one of two largest media companies in Estonia. As such, we are very important as providing the daily information for very many Estonians. Postimes comes historically from the southern part of Estonia, so it means that During the 165 years of our existence, we have there the people and families who have been in the field of Postimes over one and a half century. They have read and subscribed to the newspaper. So, of course, we have to keep that up because this is something very rare in the world anyway. We want to be and we are a little bit to the right side from the center What we do, we work so that Estonia language, state, culture will live forever. And that's our main object. We are just not here to spread information, current information, but we are here to guard the existence of Estonian culture and Estonian people and Estonian language to go through the ages. Estonia's got Russia, a very difficult country as a neighbor. How do you get prepared for disinformation attempts by Moscow and all the other tricks Russia may be coming up with? Okay, maybe we are a little bit careless because we have this horrible uh, historical experience. I remember one Finn once said uh, about Estonians when uh, the, the Finnish politicians were very afraid of Russia and Russian politicians uh, years ago. And um, Estonians didn't seem to care very much. And then uh, one Finn said that, well, they have slept with a bear. They are not afraid anymore. It means that um, we have seen how the system works. We have a better insight how the Russian propaganda machine works because some of us have seen it in a full, uh, full steam here in Estonia. So I think that we are quite good at uh, understanding what they are really doing. And, uh, well, if you look at the, the current political situation in the world, so 
this story, what Estonian politicians have been telling for the last 10 or 15 years, that beware of Russia, it will end very badly. It's really true. And now the world and the Western Europe really recognizes that Estonians have told what has to come. And Western Europe said that, well, 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 no, 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 we have good economic relations, we buy gas and they do not want to, to tear the thing up, but they did, because the Russian Empire and the spirit of Russian Empire has never died, actually. How do you fight Russian disinformation? Mainly by not publishing it, <laughs> because the information works when you publish it. We look very carefully what we publish in uh, connection to Russia. So it means that, if uh, journalistically, that uh, we do not take Russian information for truth and uh, we do not publish Russian uh, information without commentaries. And the commentary to that kind of information should come at the very beginning of the new story. So they will not get the chance to tell the story before we say anything about it. Can you give me examples of Russian disinformation? Any, any examples of what you've been dealing with recently? Hmm. Recently, we, we have been dealing with Russia's uh, information that... Uh, the killer of Russian philosophers, Dugin's daughter, Dugina. The killer is a Ukrainian woman. She has a 12-year-old daughter, and they have escaped Russia after the murder through Estonia. So uh, what we can say that we, uh, at the very beginning, we can say that uh, nobody has any confirmation that this is true, but we have information from Ukraine who say that this is not true, that they had that kind of car plates or where the woman worked or were in a service, then we might tell some of the details, but what appear to be truthful, like about the explosion and so on. How do you take into account the rather large Russian minority in Estonia? We take it into account as being the largest Russian language media provider in Estonia. We have a Russian language uh, weekly newspaper, which is 40,000 copies, it's 24 pages, it's a free sheet, it goes into the post boxes of Russian-speaking people. It's the largest Russian language newspaper in Estonia. Then we have the largest portal, rus.postimes.ee. Then we have the Russian language entertainment portal. So they are combined together, they work tightly together, and what is important that uh, the Estonian side and Russian side inside the office, one is uh, on the left side and the other is on the right side of the large newsroom, they work tightly together, they exchange the ideas, they exchange the topics, and they work on mutual articles which are interesting to Estonian public and Russian public as well. Just a very speculative question, but I'm just wondering if there were someone who would be suspiciously pro-Kremlin, pro-Moscow, what would that mean for this floor and how would you deal with that? Well, we, we, would, uh, we would deal very fastly because uh, the media company, of course, uh, media companies usually watch uh, very carefully what the other media companies do. The, the <coughs> that's a competition which keeps us healthy, which helps to avoid mistakes. So uh, as in media company, the product is news. So if uh, we see that uh, some guy or gal is writing news, which uh, uh, I gotta say smells strange, then we would have a talk <laughs> and our ways will depart very very fast. So, but there has not been any of the, such cases. 
How is print media doing in Estonia? Print media is doing quite all right. Basically, it's doing like it's uh, doing in all Europe and in, uh, in America, uh, losing from 5 to 10% of the circulation every year and uh, switching the business model from the ad and subscription-based model to digital subscription-based model. So I think that we are, in Estonia, we are quite good in that, and the part of our digital subscription is raising all the time. So at the same time, we uh, make the best for our paper, paper readers, because they are most loyal people for us, because they trust us so that they give the money to us for one year, beforehand and then we send them paper. What kind of plans do you have for the future of Postimes? The Postime, future of Postimes will be to be a very modern digital news hub. And this is something which is called today the Newsroom 3.0. And it means that this is very data-based. To say it in a very simple terms, it says that the responsibility is brought as low as possible. So in the different departments like culture or, or opinion or business, they have a lots of um, independence and they know who are their readers and they know it very exactly. So they take their independent decisions to write that kind of story for some kind of their audience. And the channel is only a way to take the information to audience. So the target of the journalists will be the audience, not paper, not web, not mobile or anything else. Amazing. Thank you very much, Kiitos Paljon. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpnmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And before we go, a little song for you. It's Kerli with Army of Love. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Oh,